Biz Bell uh, has worked for DOC. She eventually went on to set up Wildlife Management International. She has become a renowned uh, pest extermination expert. And that comes from a love of the wild and of uh, our precious flora and fauna that she learnt at her father Brian's knee. The renowned conservationist and ornithologist Brian Bell, whose life's mission was to save Aotearoa's native species from extinction. Uh, but she has become uh, an expert, as we said, on techniques uh, for uh, dealing with pests. She's just returned not that long ago, a few weeks now, from a trip to the UK and Caribbean, clocking up her 30th, clocking up her 30th predator-free island project. I asked Biz Bell to recount the trip. Give us an idea of exactly what her work entails. I have been away for a long time. I've been in three different Caribbean countries and in Northern Ireland doing predator eradication work and predator-proof fencing uh, in the Caribbean. And what exactly does that work involve? Uh, So for the work in Northern Ireland, I'm a technical advisor on a rat and feral ferret eradication project on Rathlin Island, which is one of the largest islands in Northern Ireland uh, off the northern tip. And uh, yeah, so I'm giving advice on how that eradication is going to proceed and all the technical bits and pieces that they need to do to make sure that eradication is a full success. For the Northern Ireland project, it's basically... Dock 250 traps, which are now legal in Northern Ireland, and those are to target the ferrets. And it's a little bit different in the UK. We have to operate quite differently to how we would normally operate in New Zealand. So we must trap all the ferrets first and remove those from the island. And then we can go on to the rat eradication after that. And that's using a rodenticide in bait stations across the island. What were you doing in the Caribbean? Ah, so I was doing three different projects. Two of them were predator-proof fences, so we've been constructing the first predator-proof fences in the Caribbean, one in Anguilla and one in Barbados. And these, we're familiar with them from the very successful uh, onshore or uh, mainland sanctuaries we have in New Zealand, Zealandia being one of them. Are these similar projects, quite sophisticated fence lines? Yes, it's, it's, it's a brand new thing for the Caribbean. So we've been working on their offshore islands, removing pest species as we normally do, but this is the first time they've been put on their mainlands. And uh, it's quite unusual because we're usually protecting lizards or snakes, which is unusual for a New Zealander, but uh, still fascinating. And it's building specialised fences, very, very similar to the Zealandia ones, but sometimes with a few little tweaks. So we have to put some special flashing up to prevent geckos climbing in and things like that. This is not uh, easy terrain to work in. What are some of the more challenging places that you've uh, been working on these kinds of projects and some of the challenges that come to a technical advisor? So uh, one of the key challenges, particularly for the Rathlin project, is the cliffs. So they have various heights, but uh, anywhere up to sort of 90 metres tall, and uh, we have to have specialised climbers. So I do a lot of cliff work, and we get climbing specialists in to help us put in new traverse lines with special cables so that people can work on these cliff spots in full safety. So they're almost abseilers. Yes, we do. We actually have... Mountaineers are the best people to work with because we don't actually have to do classic abseiling, although on Rathlin we do. We have one very 
impressive 75 foot uh, 75 meter drop um, that we have to put uh, traps and bait stations down into this little gully right at the bottom of the coastline uh, so that's a very impressive uh, access problem um, but generally mountaineers is what we need so we're sort of doing fall arrest systems so you're still on ropes but you don't need to hang di- directly onto the rope so let's talk about the origins of Wildlife Management International. Uh, this is something that started with your dad, Brian Bell, and many, many people will know his story. But for those who don't, uh, remind us. So dad worked for the New Zealand Wildlife Service and then for the New Zealand Department of Conservation. And when he retired in the early 90s, he decided to to take the technology and all those amazing techniques and, and uh science tools that he'd learned through his career um, privately. And so he created his own company and basically took uh, me and my brother around the world doing lots of exciting things, showing people that you could save seabirds and other species by removing pest species from islands. I mean, we've got a favourite island in the Marlborough Sounds, Maud Island, where we went often as children. And, you know, we worked with Kākāpō, we worked with the, the Maud Island frog, you know, so we got to do some amazing thing as kids. You know, I can one of my one of my memories is I can remember studying for my school certificate exam in my bedroom. I get a knock on my door and dad goes, Oh, would you like to come and release some takahe? And I was like, Oh yeah, of course I would. He goes, Oh, well, come on, we're leaving. You know, the late Peter Button is flying us in his helicopter and we've got to re- release ka- uh, takahe in, in about half an hour. So it's like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, so I was pretty lucky. Got to do some pretty amazing things growing up. He worked to some extent with another conservation great, Don Merton. What was it they worked on together? Uh, so they did the Black Robins, basically, in the Chatham Islands. So Dad uh, helped mentor Don in that process and, uh, yeah, got to save the Black Robins as part of that historic story of New Zealand. How aware were you at the time of how groundbreaking all this was? Were you just living in the moment out there on Maud Island, uh, living the dream? (laughs) Oh, we definitely lived the dream, Um, and I I still do. I I love what I do. Um, Oh, we, we knew these people were amazing, and we knew all these species were incredible. We got to go to some amazing places that people just hear about and never get to see. And so, you know, it's it's been an absolute privilege to to go where we go. Maud Island is, is an extraordinary place. I mean, the fact that we grew up, you know, spent lots and lots of long summers there. And, you know, I can, I can remember going around at night counting frogs around the frog fence and suddenly realising that most people didn't even know we had native frogs in New Zealand. And when we do, that they don't croak and they, you know, they don't have eardrums and and this sort of thing. So we got to learn these intimate details that we could then go back and tell our, our friends at school and, and that sort of thing and uh, just help spread the word about how special New Zealand is. One of the earliest memories I have is... Uh, we had to go and rescue a wandering albatross on the shores of Lyle Bay Beach. It uh, had one a member of the public had rung up and said that it looked like a sick albatross, and uh, so we all got loaded into our combi van as kids and driven to the to the uh, shore. And I can just remember, you know, and I was only four or five at the time, and Dad uh, picked up this albatross and put it in the back with the with the kids in the back, and I just remember thinking that albatross is bigger than my dad. All I could see was his legs dangling out the bottom as he walked the the bird into the car. And and then we got home and we were feeding it sardines and water and and then a week later got to release it back on the the shores for it to take off. It's almost like a a, a fiction adventure story, some of this, isn't it, for a kid? (laughs) Um, 
of course, your, your childhood coincided also with the epic effort to save the, the kākāpō. And how close did you get to the action there? Oh, very. So, again, it's, a, it's another wonderful Maud Island story. We were all asleep at, at, at night, of course, and uh, my mother woke up hearing a kākāpō booming, which was for the first time they boomed on Maud Island. And she woke my dad saying, uh, Brian, the kākāpō are booming. And... Um, it took him a while to realise what she was saying, but the minute he recognised what was going on, we were all woken up and racing around the island to try and triangulate where that bird was so that we could then uh, monitor what it was doing and hopefully see if it was going to breed. What was the attitude to conservation at that time? You might have reflected on this later. And the state of our native species, particularly birds. Was there a, a level of pessimism in that some of these conservation efforts were, you know, very nice, but just weren't going to work. Well, it was always very difficult in, in those days. People just didn't understand a lot of it, really. We just had to just keep doing what we were doing. But it, it's so different these days. The The amount of public support and the community drive to, to save species is, is fantastic. Maria Island comes to mind in the 1960s. Was this a moment where this idea of life rafts, of island sanctuaries that could be predator-free, was proved. Yes, well, I mean, in the very early days, people thought that rats were going to just, or the New Zealand native species would get into an equilibrium. And so there was a really big fight between scientists of the days and those official practitioners and rangers on the islands saying, actually, no, rats are going to kill everything. And so after Big South Cape was happened when rats got onto that island and, you know, uh, sadly exterminated several species and people saw this happening with their own eyes. They realised that we needed to do something about rats. And then Maria Island happened accidentally. So basically the seabird scientists of the days, you know, went out and, and in between the seabird season just put some rat bait out and then came back the following season and realised that they accidentally got rid of the rats on the island. And so New Zealanders being New Zealanders decided that, well, if we can do it by accident, I'm sure we can do it on purpose. And so started to develop those techniques to be able to eradicate rats from islands but keep everything else safe as they can and restore it for seabirds. You'd been a helping hand for all those years in childhood to some of these ambitious efforts. When did it become your own career and how? Uh, so basically I got taken to Mauritius by Dad uh, in the mid-90s, uh, just after I'd finished my master's thesis, and uh, yeah, just hit the ground running from then on. Have loved it ever since. Why is it New Zealand is so well-placed for this type of eradication methods? You're sharing it around the world now, but why is there something particular to our geography that makes it ideal? Well, basically, our species, you know, we're, we're an avian island, basically, covered in birds, and these guys developed in a country that had no mammals. And then, unfortunately, of course, our ancestors and colonists decided to bring all these horrible species to us, and we have to work out a way to get to get rid of them safely. And so New Zealand has just developed these amazing techniques that enabled us to get rid of predators off islands, and now we're taking that technology around the world. I think you alluded to it earlier, but there are different perspectives on this. There are perspectives on whether anything is a pest. Dame Jane Goodall was a very good person to have a conversation with that about. And then there is the question of one person's pest is another one's protected species, the opossum, for example. 
Um, what's been your experience as you've started to take this global? Uh, and, and have there been times where you met with resistance or had to really deal with local um, perspectives? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you know, a, a pest is is always a pest in one place and, and may not be in another, you know. And unfortunately, animals in some locations just put the balance of the of the natural biodiversity out. And so, and unfortunately, it's usually because people have accidentally taken them somewhere. So we then have to have to fix that situation. We came across people, it's it's trying to educate people on the on the issues that these invasive species cause. So we had issues with with people not thinking that black rats, so ship rats, um, were, were vegetarian. They're not, they're not going to eat birds in, in the UK. And so we had to explain to them, well, no, actually they do uh, eat birds. And, and we had to get collect evidence to show that they did that before we could then eradicate them from an island. What has been uh, the story? I know an example of this early on happened on Lundy, which is an island off North um, Devon in the UK. Yes. And what was its story and the lessons learned? Oh, so it's it's an amazing story. So it was one of the very early eradications that I managed. So it's an island that had both black and brown rat on it, so two species of rat, and it was decimated. These rats were decimating the seabirds, so particularly Manx shearwaters and the puffins. And uh, the island had got down to only having seven individual puffins left on it and about 350 breeding pairs of Manx shearwaters when we came on and did the rat eradication. And 20 years later, there's now over 7,000 pairs of Manx shearwaters and nearly 400 pairs of puffins. So the recovery on that island has just been magnificent. We've uh, done five major eradications in the UK and uh, about uh, another dozen in the Caribbean, even more so just investigating the uh, feasibility of those islands uh, in, in other locations. Are you seeing some species coming back? Oh, yes. Uh, it's it's absolutely amazing. It's It's fantastic to be able to go back to these islands and visit them. So I got asked one time when I would think Lundy Island was a success, and I said, well, when the tourists who stay there in the lighthouse complain that the birds are keeping them awake. And just about 20 years to the day, um, we were talking with the rangers on the island and the RSPB seabird ecologists who had just done a survey, and they'd been told at the pub that night that the uh, people, the guests staying at the lighthouse were saying, these boy birds are so noisy, they keep us up at night. So, you know, it's, it, that, that level of recovery is fantastic. Another example is at St Agnes Island in the Isles of Scilly. So, yeah, so that's uh, one of the first sort of community-driven eradications in the Caribbean, uh, in, in the UK. So it's a, a, a small community on that island and we removed brown rats from there uh, a few years ago and the Manx shearwaters, the chicks, uh, fledged successfully for the first time in 100 years of living memory. There are new threats now. We've talked a lot about predators, and obviously that remains a never-ending task and a never-ending vigilance. But there are new threats, including climate change. And how is this being factored into conservation efforts? Yeah, climate change is a, is a is a big one, and it's really impacting on on a lot of species. Uh, it's changing their breeding season timing. It's changing how their, you know, so for seabirds in particular, how their burrows survive. You know, excess massive amount of rainfall is causing flooding and and death of chicks and eggs. 
Uh, it's changing where their prey are in the sea with sea surface temperatures. It's, yeah, there's some significant issues with those sort of problems. There's also other issues, particularly for some of our greatest seabirds. You mentioned the albatross, and that can be the impact of long-lying fishing. Are we seeing any improvements in practices to that threat to those great birds? Absolutely. There is a massive amount of research being done on mitigation measures and the fishing industry, uh, you know, are trying very hard that, you know, they're they're not an industry who want to catch birds. They want to catch fish, of course. Um, And they are working very hard to prevent that. There are some, there are some steps we can continually take, you know, putting exclusion zones in and changing uh, other types of fishing practices, particularly trawling and things, but uh, everybody is working together to, to try and mitigate all those risks. We've got some long-term seabird monitoring projects that we've been doing for a number of years. I monitor the Takakatai or black petrel on Aotea, Great Barrier Island, and have been for nearly 30 years. And uh, yeah, we're monitoring these birds in relation to fisheries risk, but also to climate change and habitat uh, improvements on the island. And uh, yeah, we've banned lots and lots of birds. Sadly, for at the moment, they're, they're stable to declining, the black petrels, so uh, there's still a little bit of work to be doing there, and mainly due to uh, unknown risk to juveniles. So adults seem to have a reasonably good survival rate, but juveniles, they just go missing after they leave the colony. Um, very few come back to the colony, so we're just trying to work out what, what's going wrong with that, with that age class. Regrettably, were they also impacted by the awful weather at the start of this year that impacted so much of uh, Auckland and and the East Coast? Yes, we lost 30% of our breeding uh, attempts this year due to flooding. Um, We've had burrows that have never been wet before underwater. And uh, yeah, and so when we go back in a couple of weeks to the colony, we'll be able to see if we lost any adults as well, because uh, some of the adults whose eggs failed and chicks drowned in the burrows uh, never returned that season because of course usually they just go to sea after a failure but um, hopefully hopefully they were okay after the weather event and then the cyclone and uh, hopefully we catch them again in a couple of weeks back at the colony. You must need a, a certain mindset for this biz because there are bad days as well as good days that's for sure and often it must feel a little bit like um you know, David and Goliath, so to speak. Uh, do you need a certain attitude, which is to be excited about every uh, every win, if you like? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we like I said, we get to go to some amazingly magic places and work with some incredible people and some absolutely special species. And so you've got to take joy in that. And yes, you know, there are some some pretty scary things happening, but, you know, we're working incredibly hard to help these species thrive. We've still got the 2050 predator-free goal for Aotearoa New Zealand. Can it happen? I I do believe it can happen. There is going to need a a lot of new technology and a lot of uh, brains working outside the box to to create some of these new things. Um, But it's that community drive. And this is what I think has been the most amazing thing with predator-free 2050 is we just have a huge buy-in from the community. They are protecting some incredible spaces in their backyard. And once we all link up, you know, we'll be getting there. It may be about to become a debate with the incoming government's perspective, one parties anyway, on uh, GE laws, genetic modification laws that have not been addressed for over two decades now. Are some of those tools likely going to be some form of gene editing, uh, do you think? 
Well, I think it's something we have to look at. Um, we do have to look at every option we have. You know, this is a, a an, an aspiring goal to be going for. Um, and I just think we do have to look outside the box sometimes. And that is Biz Bell, who, uh, with her company, has become, as we said, a, an expert globally on wildlife management. That's the kind term. Pest eradication is another way of putting it. Um, and uh, has recently been, fairly recently been away in the UK and Caribbean, working around the world as she does.